The following podcast is a production of Mosaic in Whittier, California, a community of faith, hope, and love. For more information about Mosaic gatherings and events, please visit mosaic.org. We, we began a series last week and um, had a lot of good feedback from the top regarding Islam. And I want to point out what, what this series is not about. This series is not about uh, the differences. That's easy. And the difference is that we focus on that, that exclusively, then what you're left with is you're, you know, you're wrong and I'm right. And I, I pointed out that, that we, what we want to do is be able to have an intelligent conversation with the world, with people who are not part of our faith. And what's amazing to discover is that the more that you probe and, and unwrap and, and begin to study and be familiar with other great world religions, honestly, it confirms your faith. Right? And I realize that many times folks might say, well, well-meaning and good intention, but I think this is not healthy. So, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. That if you study other religions, you might, you know, might be persuaded to be part of that. And I think, well, you know, if you're not thinking through your own faith, you don't really own that faith yet either. And I maybe take the scriptures and the Holy Spirit more seriously that I'm convinced that if you are a seeker of truth, you will find it. That, that God cares enough to communicate to us and share with us who he is so that you live in reality. And as I said before, you know, um, reality is your friend. Reality and truth are always your friend. So this morning, we're going to take a look at, at Buddhism. And as I said in the past, I, I recognize what... You know, in a half hour, my, my response is my talk is, is at best, you know, um, partial, incomplete. And th- there's no way in 30 minutes to get anybody up to speed on Buddhism, okay? So for the next four hours, what I will be doing is... Uh, <laughs> I didn't want to hear myself for four hours, let alone 30 minutes either. But, 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 so we're going to have some touch points. What's common? What do we have in common with people who are Buddhists, who are interested in the Buddhist faith. So to begin with, we'll take a look at the scriptures. In Genesis chapter 1, it reads this, that in the beginning, God created the heavens uh, and the earth, and now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and God said, let there be light. Now, I want to stop here for just a moment. You hear that so often you know, I remember uh, once my wife said that, w- that when she was sort of trying to f- process and discover God, she just took the Bible and started reading it from page one because, you know, that's how you read a book, right? <laughs> and for those of us who have tried that, you recognize that the scriptures are not a chronological account of the story of God. So you come across a, a phrase like that because you hear it so often, perhaps it means little to us until you remember what it's like to live without light, without clarity, without understanding. And so God speaks, let there be light, and there was light. Verse 4, God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And in the evening, and there was a morning, the first day. Now jump, jump over to John chapter 1. John begins his book in a very similar fashion. He says, in the beginning was a word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And he, speaking of the word, was with God in the beginning. Which is really clear, right? I mean, why do we give people who are brand new to our faith a copy of John? 
Through him all things were made, and without him nothing that was made has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. When uh, part of this uh, conversation this morning, uh, where's Daniel? Daniel, oh, there you are. Raise your hand, bro. Just, there you go. Okay. Uh, Daniel, yeah, I'll use the word. He, he is, uh, the paper you wrote and some other things, has a, a, a great grasp on Buddhist teachings and evangelizing or sharing faith with Buddhists. Um, but uh, so Daniel has a lot of, of uh, insight into the common touch points between Christianity and Buddhism. And so this is of interest to you. He's a great resource. Um, we also have some literature that on your guest cards, if you would like some free literature, we'll be happy to give it to you about the common touch points between Christianity and Buddhism. So I think the first one that comes to mind is, is, is the Buddha's quest for enlightenment. There's something absolutely honorable about his desire for truth. If you know the story, you reckon, you'll know that he was a, a wealthy young man. He had the ability to stay safe in the pleasure and security of his great wealth. And yet he recognized that though he had everything, he had nothing. And there was something absolutely missing. And in this sense, we intuitively know that Jesus and the Buddha have something to say to humanity. That something is missing no matter what you possess. Or what you've done. And so this amazing hunger for truth led him to the, what's known as the great renunciation. This, I am giving it all away. I will not be safe. I will. This is what he did that a lot of believers don't do. And, and we, we're claiming that we have the truth, correct? What he chose to do was to actually radically live by the truth he was discovering. There were four great noble truths that began to be the beginning of his journey. And I, I think for, for many of us, that the closest that we come to this is, as far as a great renunciation, is when we claim or we desire to want to connect to God through Jesus Christ. Because we're saying that whatever life I had before wasn't working. And Jesus, you have something that I need. And as you heard me say a, a few weeks ago, what, what makes this remarkable to me, as I understand God, is that he'll take us on any level. God commits to us in, a, in the language he uses, in language of marriage. I'm committing to you completely 100%. And we usually commit to, well, you know, if it works or, you know, as, well, I've said God marries us and we're still dating him. Right? So in the event that something doesn't work out, we leave. And then God uses the language of, it, it, it feels like to me, when this happens, the way up it would feel to a man when his wife is unfaithful to him. So the great renunciation as a believer is when we connect to God through Jesus Christ because we've said something about our old life and we want to connect to a new life. And it, it's just the beginning of something new and different, of learning, of being enlightened. The second thing that's interesting about Buddha is, is his analysis of his... You know, this, this probing, elegant mind to recognize what was wrong with him. <laughs> Have you ever been that person where um, 
Oh, how can I put this? English probably be helpful, but uh, you know, you, you've been that person where you can talk yourself into doing something you know you ought not to do or not to be. You pretend not to know, or perhaps uh, you know, uh, in, in a relationship, ah, this is not so bad, you know. Uh, you know. Um, how can I put it to you? Yeah, you, you, we actually just pretend not to know, and we 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 pull back a little from well, a lot actually. We pull back quite a bit from the actual radical implications of what it means to live by what we claim to be true. Because, you know, it's not convenient, it hurts, I, I don't want to, you know. Buddha wasn't that way. He was willing to live out the consequences of his beliefs. And what was more interesting to me is how he was able to generalize all of his findings in a manner, systematically, that it fits the story of humanity. In fact, the story of humanity in Buddhism, the central theme is the spirituality of every single person. Now, as a follower of Jesus, we can say, yes, we agree with that. But what's more interesting to me is that if you speak as spiritual as a Buddhist does, you're a heretic as a Christian. You know, I, I, I've seen, I've heard, I've read how folks who, um, well, I'll, I'll tell you, there's this whole even genre of literature, the Christi Christian mysticism, Christian mystics. The Desert Fathers were mystics. I think, you know, maybe they were just more in tune with the spiritual reality than we are. And because of that, it's, oh, you, you, now you get into a mystical realm. And yet the, you know, the etymology of the word tells me that there is a, an amazing mystery to following God. But we're Western, so what do we want? Answers. Clarity, certainty, outline, a PowerPoint, a PDF file. You know, we, we want it all explained to us. And, and here's what I've discovered over and over again. By the way, the, I'm taking this from the scriptures. Read the book of Job. God almost never answers a direct question. Of the hundreds of questions Jesus was asked in, the, in his biographies, he only answers three directly. Often, when he's asked a question... He answers a question behind that question. Now, you know, I, I recognize maybe part of this is um, maybe my view of authority or... I'll just leave it at that. I'm okay if someone's in charge that says, I don't owe you an explanation. Now, I know for some of you, like, the heck he doesn't. But, but even Paul had that analogy of, you know, if he's the potter, we're the clay, does the clay have the right to say, you owe me an explanation, you know, make me this way, make me that way. Right, but let's take that off the table. At what point do we arrive as finite creatures, if the story of Christianity is true, to be saved to the infinite, I want to understand something from you. As I've said before, that there is never going to come a time when we will ever have clarity about everything about God or even one thing about God. Are we ever going to be able to unwrap completely uh, the love of God? And I recognize that, you know, Paul speaks about when we're there, we see through a glass mirror now darkly, and once we're there, we're going to see clearly and understand all that language in Corinthians, but we're always going to be finite, and God will always be infinite. And uh, quite frankly, I'm okay with uncertainty. Because what Jesus does say to us is pretty clear. What's that famous Mark Twain thing, right? It's not what the Bible, it's not what I don't understand that troubles me about the Bible. It's what I do understand that troubles me. So the Buddha speaks about really amazing 
conclusions about what the problem with humanity is. And it's suffering. Life is suffering. And some of you are thinking, man, I know that. I mean, you know, the family that I have and, or whatever, I, it's suffering. The job or whatever it might be. But, but he points out what is tied to that. He says the reason that mankind suffers, that men and women suffer around the world, is because they are ignorant of reality. Comma, therefore, then we try to fill every craving, every desire, every thirst with something that doesn't fit reality. Makes sense, doesn't it? And I think if you, if you kind of unwrap that in your own head, you think, boy, that is, isn't that what the story of Jesus is? In helping us become human, helping us to live in an actual reality, and giving us himself. But, listen, I mean, you know, I do this, you do this. If you're not actually living in reality, if you refuse to, or choose not to, or doesn't make sense to me, that kind of thing, you're always going to self-medicate, you're always going to self-anesthetize, you're always going to replace God with something else. I mean, we, there's just a way, we're not going to not do that. The, the other thing about suffering, in, in the, you know, we have a language here in Mosaic about future and present and creating our futures. For, for the Buddha, he talked and spoke about that the problem with, with, with suffering and, and having these desires that are not fulfilled correctly because we're, not, we're ignorant of reality is that then it propels us into a future where we have our desires met, but it doesn't exist, so it's not real. So then we create another reality that's not real. Worse, he says, on top of that, then we miss the most powerful moment that we can experience God, which is this moment right now. Follow? Listen, let me put it in another language. If you ever said to yourself, if only, you're a Buddhist. <laughs> you're, you're kind of a Buddhist. You know, if, if, if you've ever said, if only I was this, if only I had this condition, if only I had this job, if only I had this person, if only I, whatever, whatever the if is. If you, <laughs> I just said if, um, I'm, I'm using myself. But whenever the language of, you know, you're, there's an unsettledness, you're not happy, there's not a contentment, and you, you think your solution is, if only, I have, fill in the blank, you're, you're doing what the Buddha said is the problem. You're filling in, based on your understanding of reality, a craving, a desire, filling in the thirst, propelling yourself into the future, into a reality that doesn't exist there either, and then missing the most important moment in your life, which is the right now. Follow? Really? Because I didn't get any of that. Can you want to repeat it back to me? So his diagnosis was this. Everything is suffering. Um, I have to realize that the suffering and the problem, boy, I, I, this is the part I hate too, it starts with me. How many of us have often blamed family, spouses, jobs, communities, churches, creeds, organizations, uh, you know, your race, your gender, your whatever, as the problem? Buddha says, no, the problem lies with you. Now, he also says something where, where, where he and Jesus probably still agree. Is that, that part of solving that problem is recognizing it does lie with you. Now, you've heard me say a number of times, you know, that there, there comes a point where we all have to grow up and you, you have to stop blaming everybody else for your problems. And I'm willing to admit, and I understand this, that some of you have had some lousy, you know, experiences 
I get that. That's fine. Now what? Do you curl up and die? Do you go around blaming everybody for the rest of your life? Or do you start where you're at and choose to move forward and make progress? See, Buddha would say, no matter where a person is at, that that person can begin a quest if he recognizes that all my suffering, all my problems begin because I am ignorant of reality and I'm craving and fulfilling what I think I need but something that isn't reality, which further makes the problem worse. And so the desires um, prevent peace. Possessions are a problem. See, here's where Christianity and Buddhism are very similar, except for one thing. They, they, they don't see a problem with possessions directly. Well, no, Buddha would. He would say to have things is part of the problem. So he gave away everything. You know, what's interesting to me is that I, as, as much as we claim to care, and much, well, everybody, I say we. I'll say as much as I claim to care about people who are in poverty, I realize I'm not as generous as I thought I was. I don't know, maybe some of you are you're, you're beginning to discover that part of your life. And so then what you try to do is dial back what the scriptures teach about assisting the poor. Or when Jesus talks about when you visit somebody in prison, you know, you're, you're, you're ministering to me. When you care for somebody who doesn't have food or water or clothing, you're, you're caring for me. And you know what's interesting? We'll, we'll put that aside thinking, mm, that doesn't apply because who would ever think of visiting somebody in jail that wasn't your family member? Because if they're in jail, they have that coming, right? And yet Jesus identifies with those, those men and women in prison. Now, when you, when you go there and you care for people there, you're caring for me. For those of us sitting in this room, that, that, that kind of maybe might jolt your sensibilities. So Buddha would say, the solution to possessions is have nothing. And Jesus would say, oh no, you can have possessions, but give them away. Fill needs. What did he say to the rich young ruler? Hey bro, you're an amazing man. You're young, you're handsome, you're wealthy, you're moral. And yet, Jesus recognized that what this man had kept him from an amazing experience with God. That your stuff was important. All of life is suffering. Jesus would agree. Isaiah 53 speaks of that. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that we have a high priest that actually cries out in pain. And so there isn't any part of our human experience. Misunderstanding from our parents of physical pain, incredible, you know, soul-crushing, mind-numbing loneliness, um, uh, rejection, um, uh, fear. Uh, you know, maybe it's hard for us to even process that, that Jesus was afraid or that he hesitated or even stumbled in, in fulfilling uh, what he believed God had him to do. But if the Garden of Gethsemane was anything, it's, it, it was the moment of crisis for Christ. Self-discovery, self-actualization. Here he is at 12. Here, there he was again at, at 30 coming into his own personhood. We have a high priest, Paul says, that is familiar with the entire human experience. Now this is where Buddha and Christ maybe separate a little bit differently because Buddha would say, well, um, no, the answer really lies with you. It cannot be with anybody else. And so what's attractive about the teachings of the Buddha is that in many ways it, says, oh, it parallels my life. I mean, I get this. It, it does speak to my human experience. It, it, it makes sense of a lot of stuff except that he pushes me away. So we, but listen, I, gotta, I have to work out my own truth. You have to work out yours. And Jesus instead invites us into his life. You follow? The shame and guilt, they're both problems for uh, Buddhism and, and Christianity. With Buddhism, however, there, there is no relief. Um, at best, what you can do is continue through the uh, eightfold path, which mimics our Ten Commandments, 
to continue to develop compassion for other people, to develop wisdom, to develop the muscle of generosity, to become a better person, but you never actually rid yourself of shame and guilt. Christianity offers a different response. Christianity recognizes that there's actual shame and guilt, there's actual, you know, mess. It doesn't say that's not real, it just says here's the solution. And so we can look at our friends in the Buddhist community and like Paul said in Acts 17, man, I get it, you are very religious. You're amazing in how you live out your life. You're not playing. You actually live out your faith in a very public manner. Here's, here's a piece I think is missing. Let me speak to you about this unknown God. Years ago, I was at an airport with a friend of mine named Alex and um, waiting for a, a jet. A jet. Waiting for the plane. Anyway, waiting for our jet, yeah. Anyway, so we were waiting for it to board, you know, southwest, like cattle, brrr, get in there. And uh, uh, so there was this Jewish man, um, you know, goes to the facing Jerusalem, east, right? Opens his coat to get something out. He was wearing a shawl thing or something. I forget what it was. Puts on his uh, cap and starts to pray, you know. And I remember thinking, wow. But he didn't do this in a very demonstrative public way. He actually sort of found a, a, a way like, from the folks towards the window, kind of trying to be private about it, you know. And I remember thinking, uh, I even said it out loud, you know, no filter. I said, wow, that's amazing. This guy's actually living out his faith publicly like this, you know. And Alex actually pointed out something that stuck with me. He says, we all do. We all live out a belief system. Think about this for just a moment. What do our actions say about our belief system? Um, it's, not an it's not a comfortable analysis all the time. Buddha would say, the problem is you're still craving incorrectly. Christ says, I have something that you still need that I can give you. So with, with Buddha, we have a sort of a heal yourself without forgetting that your actions have a moral consequence on your life and the life of other people. Um, it's that you know, literary line that no man is an island. You know what's, what's very Greek and therefore Western, and then even we, we've Americanized it even further, this uh, romanticized it even in Westerns, is, is, is the lone traveler. That wisdom is found, or, you know, my authentic self is found alone. Now let me, let me I, I want to spend some time on this for just a moment, maybe couple hours. I want to spend a couple of moments on this. I, I know my own tendency is to pull back when I don't want to know what I probably do already know. Or to pull back when I don't trust someone to give me an answer with my best interest in mind. Now what I mean by that is that the most persuasive person in your life is going to be somebody that you trust. Correct? You can yeah, you say yes. So, um, um, but you see, that's not, not only is it not the Jesus way, it's not even Buddha's way in the path for enlightenment, in the foundational traditions of Buddhism. There are three jewels. The Buddha himself, the teachings, the Dharma, and community. I found that amazingly interesting. But this is the same things you could say about our journey as followers of Jesus. He said, I, I, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. It's me, my teachings, and community. Uh, I'm, in a, I'm at school, you know, where a beanie, take an apple. And, um, you know, one of my more common 
easy go-to sins is arrogance. Um, but, you know, it's easy. I mean, look at me. I'm amazing. So the point is, is that... Uh, uh, <laughs> did I say that out loud? I meant to think it. So, uh, uh, so in this theology class, you know, there's nothing but teenagers, right? You know, bad skin, awful hair. And the thing is that... Uh, the, uh, so we have to meet once a week. I, I actually try to get out of this. We have to meet with a group of people. The, the professor, you know, broke us up into little groups. Okay, and we have to meet for an hour. I thought, oh, it's an hour. I can stomach it, you know. And, oh, no, it's weekly. You have to write a report, and you're going to work out your theology. Because theology is done best in community. I, I, I recall, you know, my, my first reaction to that was, I don't need these people to help me figure out Jesus. Now, as I thought that, I remember thinking, yeah, I'm right. Now, as I thought that is, uh, wow, there's a level of arrogance there I haven't tapped into lately, you know? Oh, there it is. I thought I misplaced it. But I'm willing to bet most of you are that way, too. This is why some of you don't like women's groups, even though you're a woman. Because if you're a guy, you're all about it, I guess. But Because uh, what, what are those ladies going to teach me? This is why some of you maybe don't like groups. Because, you know, I, what are you going to teach me about Jesus? What are, you, what are you going to tell me about God? See, Buddha and Jesus had something they both tapped into. That, 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 that the certainty of a path to enlightenment includes a group. I, I don't know why it is. I've said it before. I'll say it again. If you're goofy, jacked up, broken, evil, rotten, horrible, God says the prescription to get whole is, let me put you in a group of people just like you. Makes no sense to me, right? And yet this is the story of the scriptures over and over again. And oddly, even in Buddhism. So the prescription is this, um, this, you know, the teachings, the Buddha himself, community. Um, everything was this, a sense of releasing or getting rid of yourself. Now, this is where maybe there might be a split again. In that the Buddha taught that the more I forget or minimize myself the greater liberty I have. Because I'm free of these cravings that cause my suffering that I can experience enlightenment. Now, see, that sounds kind of Christian, doesn't it? I mean, when, when John says something about that his cousin Jesus has to increase and he has to decrease, it, he's tapping into something. Now, I'll be honest with you. A lot of times, I know that's true. I just don't want to. I mean, I'm, I'm very familiar and comfortable with, with my mess. I mean, you know. And by the way, my mess always looks better on me than you. Right? I, I know how to wear it well. You, you're just like, that doesn't work for you. you know, that, that arrogance is awful on you. For me, it's okay. But it just doesn't work for you. And, and often, I think what's, what frightens us is that if I'm no longer this thing, or if I release that, or if I'm not this person, then who am I? What's left? Now, for Buddha, he would say, exactly. Nothing. That's the goal. And, and Jesus would say, the most unique you you're supposed to be, the you that I meant you to be. Both of these men were known for their uh, amazing, essential selflessness, giving away, sharing their lives, but also willing to share their personal insights to anyone who would ask. So here you hear an echo in the book of James when when James, the brother of Jesus, says, hey man, if, if, if any man or woman, anybody, is uncertain what to do, if you lack wisdom, you can ask God and he'll give it to you liberally and it's not going to be like, I, I can't believe you're asking again. I just gave you wisdom last week. 
What a wisdom hog. Now, let, let, let me be clear about this. I want to stress this again. To anybody who wants to learn, you can gain wisdom. Here's what the trouble has been, and let me know if this is familiar to any of you. I don't want to know, so I have plausible deniability later. <laughs> or if I know, it just makes it harder to continue with my own way of doing stuff. I mentioned this before, it bears repeating. I spent years when reading the scriptures intentionally avoiding the four biographies of Jesus, especially the red letters. I didn't mind reading about Jesus, reading up to Jesus in the Old Testament, what the life of Jesus means in the, in the letters of the apostles, but the life of Jesus itself, his words, too weird. Because I thought, well, what if it's true? What if it's true if he says, if you don't forgive somebody, your father won't forgive you? Well, let me try, try, let me try to make that cultural. Maybe it means you don't experience this forgiveness. Or, or, you know. What if it's just true? What if, what if it really, he really meant it when he said, hey, man, if you're not really caring for people who are in poverty, crushing, soul-numbing poverty, you're not my follower. Yeah, but I, I want to really buy this shirt of banana. I mean, can I, do I have to give someone bread? See, Buddha would say yes, if you want enlightenment. And I think Jesus would too. And so you, you, when, when you meet a practicing Buddhist, more than likely, that's an amazing individual, male or female, who's, who has a hunger and desire for what's true and right and understands something is wrong with humanity. See, Buddha and Jesus agree. Something's not right. And so there's an enlightenment. Now, here's where there's some divergence. Because so far, we can travel with the Buddhist. And this is where we... Then there's, a, there's a slight fork in the road. What? Okay, it's a big fork. But the Buddha would say that the light and the solution is found within you. And Jesus and God say, I, I'm, I'm the light that enlightens. It can't come from inside. Now, for Buddha, it worked. Now, here's what I've, uh, you know, maybe for some of you have been this way as well. Um, <laughs> How many of you, uh, anybody dieting here today? Anyone, di anyone willing to admit it? No? All right. Um, I, I decided to not drink uh, soda, and, um, which has been a staple of my diet for the last 20, 30 years. And so I'm, I'm just trying to drink water with meals, trying to stay hydrated, you know, keep flesh in the system, better skin. And uh, you, know, all, you know what all I think about every day? Soda. I'm craving it better. I mean, even right now, I want, the only thing I want right now, when I woke up this morning, I, I Lily bought espresso pods, by the way, so well done. Um, so we had espresso at the house. I did press the button, but I actually looked for the, in the refrigerator, like, is there soda in the house anywhere? I just need a little soda. I feel like a heroin addict, like a meth head. I just need a little hit, you know, just want a, a little soda. Hey, man, how much for, you got soda? You got soda, bro? Um, you know, it... The thing is, well, here's what I found, that this seems to be true from almost all my life. I have a limited ability to, to, of willpower. And I think so do you as well. Uh, a week ago, a week and a half ago, I posted this article on Facebook. I should be your friend, by the way. Uh, about making better decisions. And being aware that there's only a certain amount of energy and, and emotional strength to make good decisions. Because they always require a bit of willpower. Have you noticed that uh, you know, when you're tired from working physically... 
You know, you could have a soda, you can eat, the rest of it, you're good to go. But when you've had to make decisions mentally, like in driving, how fatiguing that is, you're just exhausted, and you've done nothing but sit. You're experiencing the deficit of willpower. Now, apparently, I wasn't born with much willpower, and I've discovered that if I don't have the, the, the internal ability to make proper decisions for myself, I have to have external structure to do it for me. Occasionally, that was a jail sentence and uh, being pulled over or, or other situations that happened. And some of you were, you were like, oh man, that, that helps explain some events in my life. Remember this, if you don't have the ability to make proper decisions, decisions that you want, life will make it for you. Or you have to impose upon yourself external uh, structures and limits, right? Okay, there's a point to all this. Buddha would say, if the answer lies within us, that we can discover it. I, that's never worked for me. That worked for any of you? Even if you knew what was right to do, did you have the ability to do it? And I've told you about my feelings on duty. And like duty is like, like death to me. I just can't. It's your duty. Go on. I, you know, I just make me want to do this. I can't. You know, it's the right thing to do. I'm hearing you. I'm just not feeling you. You know. <laughs> now this may be childish. Um, it probably is, but I have to want to do it. And I realize many times I just don't want to. Until I'm deeper in love with Jesus. And then I see that principle that I've shared with you over and over again. How love moderates behavior. Right? The more I love, the more it affects my behavior. But I can't do it by duty. In fact, I'll tell you honestly, I always feel that that cheapens my connection to God. You're supposed to do it. But I love this person. I can't get there by saying I'm supposed to do it. So the difference in, in, in gaining enlightenment, the way our Buddhist friends would speak of it, the way our, is that there was something internal and in, in, uh, there's an ability within each of us that if we really radically apply his teachings of selflessness and getting rid of our possessions that cause our cravings that, 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 that have misaligned us with reality, that once we are clear of that, then we will gain enlightenment. And Jesus says, yeah, I, you're not going to get there. If that was true, I wouldn't have come. If you were able to rescue yourselves, I, there was no need for me to die. And this is where Jesus and Buddha probably depart. Oddly, though, they still would both say to maintain that connection, however, that worship and meditation are essential. Let, let, let me be frank about this, the singing that goes on here in the mornings, okay? I, I, I enjoy it. They do a great job, don't they? Right? Great. Yeah, all right, you give them applause. You're fine. But I know for some of us, we have the notion that that's the only time you're, quote, worshiping, when you're singing together. Now, I, I believe it can happen, but here's what I think sometimes happens. is that you're just having an emotional moment with a group of people who, who agree with you and you're singing with them. I think some of you have had these amazing moments at a concert. They had nothing to do with God. That's okay. I'm just, I'm just saying that it, there's a parallel. Worshiping, at least the way the scriptures describe it, is connecting with the God that exists in reality. As Paul says, every little decision, every thought. It, it, once you align yourself to what's right, Paul says, oh, you're worshiping God. Now, I know there's moments that are necessary and needful for a corporate communal gathering to sing. As I said, because singing is very vulnerable. 
This is why we only do it in the cars and the showers, right? And for some reason, even if your windows are not tinted, it's so, once you close the windows, you're invisible, right? No one can see you. No, I'm talking about clear windows. <laughs> we have this amazing thing like, oh, the windows are closed. Like, have you, you've seen people do this, right? The windows are closed. They're just, ah, they're just going in there crazy. They're having a party. Madam, I can see you. The, the windows are just up. Madam. Or the showers. The reason that those are essential is that worship, prayer, meditation takes us to a place of connection with what we actually need. Worship, prayer, meditation will take us to a place to connect with what we actually need. Now, I, I, this is not a rant about technology. I love technology, but let's face it, it's just hard to turn it off sometimes, isn't it? And then in some of you are young moms or young parents who oh, I have kids. I go, I get it. I know. I mean, it's distracting. But if you don't find that place, you know, sir, madam, you are not connecting to what you absolutely need. Romans chapter 7 says this. We know that the law, the teachings, is spiritual. But I'm unspiritual. I'm sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what to do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, that I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, well then I agree that the law, the teachings, are good. But as it is, it is no longer myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want to do. But the evil I do not want to do, that I keep doing over and over and over again. So, now if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law, a power, a force at work in me. And it wages war against the law of my mind. It makes me a prisoner of the law of sin, at work within me. What a wretched person I am who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. Well, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Last week, I uh, took a little jab at our Calvinist friends. I pointed out that, you know, if there's an Islamic version of Christianity, it's Calvinism. Um, oddly, ironically, um, uh, when I look at Buddhism that seems to fix your destiny based on the year, the month, the stars you were born under, your destiny is set. I thought, huh, if there's a Buddhist form of Christianity, <laughs> what a coinkadink. It appears to be Calvinism as well. The thing about, um, let me say this. I, I, you know, I spent a whole decade just immersed in Calvinist literature. I, I wasn't ready to call myself a Calvinist, but I would absolutely agree with that. But during that entire decade, I can't remember a single person I helped to faith in Jesus Christ. But I could argue the points. So I was like a Christian Nero fiddling around while the world burned down around me. What a waste of time. A complete, colossal waste of time. Now, I'm not anti-theology. But if, you're, if your theology that you're trying to work out, that you so protect, it's so vital to you, 
is not causing you to fall in love with Jesus Christ, your theology is worthless. It's just making you arrogant. On a lighter note, um, the thing that's interesting about Psalm 8 is that Jesus says, I elevate each of you above the stars. I've just made you a little bit lower than an angel. But I've infused you with a destiny and a purpose that's mind-blowing. Even Paul says something about it that's in Ephesians. You, you can't even begin to imagine what I can do. Our, our friends who are in the, in the Buddhist culture have um, really quite a lot to teach us about how to live out our spirituality. And there are many, many common touch points. The difference is that Jesus Christ is able to give life, give light, and grant to each of us our humanity, our uniqueness, and set us free from ourselves. Buddha would say that if you're not able to free yourself, you're forever stuck in a cycle. Which, you know, I'm thinking if I was a Buddhist, it'd be this horrific pressure to hit enlightenment. Striving life, all my life to hit it, and maybe never knowing if I had it, hit it or not. Um, tonight, we're going to post an interview uh, with a woman named Sari, a 39-year practicing Buddhist and Pastor Irwin. Um, it's about nine minutes long. It'll be on our Facebook page. Those of you who are fans or likes, uh, you should really like it. And that'll be up there to, to unwrap. In addition, on your guest card, um, I was speaking earlier to a couple of friends that if you'd like this kind of conversation, you'd maybe like some free literature, uh, we'd be happy to email it to you. I have a six-page paper that uh, would be pretty helpful. And of course, Daniel's a great resource as well. Let's just take a moment to pray then. Father, I, sometimes I, I know that I rush right into this moment and I forget who I'm talking to. And because I guess I've forgotten what it's like to be uh, without you. Or um, worse, I guess, to know you and, and, and live as if you're not there. Help me to, and my friends that are here, help us all to be folks who so appreciate and so are grateful for the enlightenment that you've given us, for the freedom that you have freely given to us, that we'd want to have intelligent, loving conversations with men and women who disagree with us, our Buddhist friends, our Islamic friends, and all the other great faiths that we'll be discussing throughout the series. Help us not to disintegrate into a right and wrong conversation, but to be thoughtful enough to do some work and see where the common touch points are. I also pray for people who are here this morning who maybe can't buy in completely into who your son is or claims to be. So I pray that you help them step into as much as they can. Um, practicing his teachings, living out his lifestyle, exploring what the scriptures have to say. And I do thank you for, if there's one thing that we can be so thankful for, it's that you have chosen to completely reveal who you are sufficiently in your son, Jesus Christ. We may not get everything. We may not understand everything. But what you have given is ours your son. And for that we're thankful. That we do not have to live in darkness or be bound by fate. That the God of Israel lives and he sets free. For that, 
We thank you. In your son's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this production by Mosaic Whittier, a community of faith, hope, and love. For more information about Mosaic gatherings and events, please visit mosaic.org.